Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, we are joined by Liam Martin. He is a returning guest. He is the co-founder of Time Doctor, which uh, many of you are probably familiar with. He is also the co-founder of Running Remote, which we're going to hear a lot about today. And he's now also the co-author of the similarly titled book, Running Remote. So Liam is an expert on all things remote uh, and we discuss about asynchronous work, global employment and everything in between in this podcast. Really interesting, exciting podcast. We discuss the the massive changes that were experienced during COVID and uh, what we hope or what we see the future being for global employment and remote work generally. So, of course, Liam has just released this book. It's called Running Remote. It's available, of course, in Amazon and most other book sellers. So I highly recommend that you check out the book Running Remote uh, and also look into their uh, upcoming conference in Lisbon in April. Uh, it's a really, really exciting space that they are working in. So as always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerated.com slash podcast. Enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish Inside Outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. Liam Martin, welcome to the show. You are the co-founder of Time Doctor, the co-founder of Running Remote, and now also the co-author of the latest book, Running Remote. So welcome to the show and super excited to, to unpick all of this with you. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? Yeah, doing well, doing well. So tell us your latest project. You, you must be a busy guy. You've just written a book uh, and it seems to be doing incredibly well in the charts. Tell us about the book, Running Remote. Sure. So as you had already mentioned before, about six years ago, I started a conference off of Time Doctor, which 
we were also calling running remote. And I was so frustrated with trying to figure out how to not just build a lifestyle business, which we were talking about before we actually jumped on for the additional podcast, but how to really build a serious remote business. And this was back in uh, 2017, 2018. So quite a few years back at that point, COVID obviously hadn't happened and the majority of the world wasn't working remotely. And so it was a very niche conference. We had a lot of fun internet remote work nerds that ended up showing up every single year and learning about how to build and scale billion dollar remote companies. And then COVID happened uh, and the world completely changed. Just to kind of give you context, in February of 2020, 4% of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. And by March, it was 45% of the U.S. workforce working remotely. And even today, if you include hybrid, we're approximately sitting at about 35% of the U.S. workforce working remote and hybrid. So a complete change of everything that we know as it applies to work. I actually call it the biggest transition in work since the Industrial Revolution. Mm. But the Industrial Revolution took 80 years, and we did that in March. And so a lot of people jumped out of the woodwork, uh, Time Doctor, which I know probably some people would know that listen to this podcast, uh, particularly inside of the call center, BPO market, that's always been a classic kind of customer of ours. A big customer for us would be maybe 500 to 1,000 seats. And then all of a sudden in March, we would have G20 countries calling us. Like the entire world changed very, very quickly. And off of that, there were so many people that were doing remote work incorrectly. And I felt like I had this life preserver because we have team members in 140 different countries, sorry, 40 different countries, 140 people in 40 different countries. And there were these people asking me, how do you actually do remote work? You've been doing it for almost 20 years. And so I realized writing a book would be the best way to be able to actually communicate that message. And now I don't necessarily have to sit someone down for six hours. I can literally just give them this book and give them the 20 years that I have in my head directly in about a six hour read. Fantastic. And I want to get an introduction to how to run remote then maybe the, the cliff notes. Um, Matt Mullenweg, as we also discussed just prior to the call, he's a major proponent of what he calls distributed um, workforce or companies. Mm -hmm. He's, of course, the founder of WordPress, one of the most significant internet businesses in the world. Uh, and he speaks of, like, what is it, five different levels of business um, uh, remote or um, decentralized. And he says it's almost, almost like sort of... Um, Maslow's hierarchy of need, you start at the bottom and then you progress to the top. But is there necessarily any right way of running a business? You know, like most people in the world are employees and they would know that there's a million different ways of running a business. Is it is it true that there is sort of one universal truth to running a business remotely? Boy, well, number one, he actually is on page 35 and talks about the five levels of um of asynchronous organizations more specifically. So this was the big key that I realized as I was studying all of these remote pioneers. We did 36 interviews with seven, eight, and nine-figure remote founders and operators. And I started to ask myself, well, what do they all have in common? And the one single thing that they all had in common is this methodology for building businesses, which I'm calling asynchronous management 
which is the ability to be able to manage people without simultaneously interacting with them. So just to kind of give you context, out of those 40 different countries and 140 people, I probably interact directly with team members less than 10% of my work week. So about four out of 40 hours, I interact synchronously with them. And the other majority of my time, I interact asynchronously. And so this is kind of the operating system that we had all figured out before COVID in the remote pioneer community, recognizing that this was a fantastic way to be able to run a business. Not only is it an effective way to be able to run a remote company, but I actually think it's a more efficient way to run a company, period. And there are companies like WordPress and GitLab and Shopify, which are all not just unicorns, deca unicorns and, you know, $100 billion valuation companies that are using this way of building businesses to get a strategic advantage over their competitors. There are different ways of running a business and there are different ways of running a remote company. However, at least inside of the remote work community, the signal was very, very clear. Asynchronous management is by far the biggest methodology that remote companies use to be able to build their businesses pre-pandemic. And I want to talk a little bit more about asynchronous specifically. But, you know, we are social beings and we thrive within communities. And is is all of this move towards remote uh, asynchronous sort of defeating the purpose of, of, who we are as humans. And I, you know, it, it sort of dawned on me, uh, there was a comment by, uh, is it Job Van Der Voort, the CEO of Remote? And he commented mm-hmm. on LinkedIn, you know, he's obviously pro remote work, pro sort of working from wherever you, you can. And then he, he submitted a comment on LinkedIn that also, you know, you should try and avoid having meetings wherever possible. If you can, um, you know, sort of write an email or, or write a note or have Slack, do that instead of meetings. And then a friend of mine actually re- commented back and said, like, if you remove everything from an environment, from a from a work community, if you remove the meetings, what do you actually have left? And, you know, it, it's quite an interesting sort of counterpoint. If, if you sort of pull everything out of a business – are people really engaged in that business and are they really part of your culture? How would you Mm. see that? Well, number one, Yob is in chapter seven as well, uh, the CEO of remote. So we're, we're knocking everybody out here and I don't know if you would listen to the comments that Malcolm Gladwell had, um, had given last week where he had exactly your same concerns where he said, well, you have to belong to something. And a lot of the times in remote companies, he believes that you don't belong to something. Um, And I have to tell you, he's just approaching the problem differently. Mm. So the way that we really build that company culture, that cohesion, uh, there's a fantastic graph that I actually have on page 149 of... uh, of the book, and it's by a company called Doist, which is another very famous remote-first asynchronous organization. And the graph basically is two Venn diagram. It's a Venn diagram saying what companies think team culture is is how you socialize together, but what team culture is actually about 
is how you work together and socializing is an afterthought from that. So mm-hmm. in most successful remote companies, the mission of the organization is actually paramount. And this was another interesting trend that I ended up seeing when I spoke to these successful businesses. Employees inside of those organizations could spout off the mission of the company literally anytime I asked them. And it was a really interesting phenomenon where they were all almost, they had this cult-like commitment towards what they were doing as an organization. So for us at Time Doctor and, and Running Remote and all the other products that we run, our mission statement is we're trying to empower the world's transition towards remote work. If you quiz anyone in the company, I could bet you 90% of those people will be able to repeat that mission back as quickly as I said it. Because it's something that we say at the beginning of every meeting. It's why they end up joining the company. It's why they end up working in the company. It's why they end up maybe getting paid less money um, than other jobs that they could go to because they're really passionate about that particular thing and they recognize that we can move the needle in a significant way to be able to help that vision uh, come to fruition. And that's what excites people, not necessarily whether you get a birthday cake on your birthday and whether there's like, uh, you know, uh, a required Zoom meeting to be able to jump on and do Cards Against Humanity on Zoom. Not the fun one, by the way, the HR approved one that no one really wants to do. Got it. And so if you sort of move to the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you you have developed your fully asynchronous organization, what what is the utopian view of that? Like how does a organization function efficiently within a sort of fully asynchronous environment? So I also would suggest when I talk about asynchronous work, there's two ways of looking at it. My goal for everyone that reads Running Remote is not to become completely asynchronous, but to become more asynchronous. So I don't see it as a black and white issue. I see it as a could we shave an extra three hours of meetings per week off of every employee inside of the organization? What would that do to be able to optimize for productivity? What if people could spend three more hours in what my friend Cal Newport calls deep work, which is a major inspiration and framework towards the running remote book and asynchronous management at scale, the ability to be able to get into a state of workflow in which you're lost in that work, you have everything at your disposal to be able to solve the difficult problem that is ahead of you and effectively innovate inside of the market. The more people that you can optimize towards that type of activity inside of your organization, the more successful you're going to be, particularly if you're an innovation-based organization, which I know probably a lot of your listeners are at least in part um, focused on. So to me, that's the big piece that is missing when you have to constantly report on how well you're doing inside of the organization, this actually slows down your organization. I tell a lot of people that um, your job as a manager is to remove distractions from your direct reports. And unfortunately, the manager is usually the biggest source of distraction for those individuals. So what you need to do is get yourself out of that, get out of their way. And there's specific systems in the book that we talk about that allow you to be able to make sure that your employees are working on what's moving the company forward, not necessarily on serving a mid-manager's personal ego. Yeah, you certainly 
you know, preaching to the converted. I, I personally try and avoid every single meeting. And, um, you know, I'm very happy working from home. But then, you know, I, I do worry as well. You know, you said in, in March 2020 or whatever it was that 45% of the workforce went immediately to a work from home environment that had previously probably never been exposed to it. You know, and it would be interesting to look at the dive into the stats. If you removed the people that had to be on site, you know, if they're truck drivers or or um, working in hospitals, it would probably have been maybe 90% of the office workers and those that were able to work remotely. It's quite incredible. But there is this sort of um, unexamined longitudinal study that we've now gone into in that, you know, we don't know the effects of long-term asynchronous um, solo work for the younger generations 20 or 40 years from now. You know, I'm sort of relatively mature in my career and I'm happy and dedicated to work from the office. But also I had these foundational years where I went to an office. I was inspired by the senior people. I learned by emulating what they did. Um, And, you know, is do you... How do you feel about the youth of today um, that will probably develop their career in relative isolation, potentially wearing pajamas, sitting on their bed, doing work? Is is there something potentially missing from that picture, do you think? Well, number one, uh, you should definitely wear a collared shirt whenever you're working. Uh, it's it's one of those things that I actually end up doing. I'm not doing it today because it's uh, it's 9:30 at night where I'm currently when I'm currently doing this podcast. But the ability to be able to show up, have a dedicated space to be able to work is actually really critical. So that's probably lesson one before you even start that. But the mentorship that I think you're basically looking for, you're you're asking about. I think it is really important to be able to make sure that you have it. And remote first companies that are asynchronous do have this in, um, we just approach it in different ways. So a lot of the times we'll have meetings specifically for mentorship, but not necessarily for management. So maybe someone that's lateral to you, as an example, that's you're a senior engineer and you're talking with a junior engineer, but you're not directly managing that person. Those relationships we try to develop. Uh, quite a bit. The other kind of elephant in the room here is, at least in Western cultures, we don't really believe in things like arranged marriage, but we do believe, unfortunately, in arranged friendships. Um, You just show up at the office and that's your social network. When you look at the trajectory of someone's life, you actually see their social networks get smaller and smaller and smaller until the age of 60, in which case it starts to expand. And it only expands at that point is because they've retired, they're no longer in the workforce, and they're forced to actually go into the real world and start to make friends. And so as a remote worker, I've already learned this lesson. Um, I talk with my neighbor who actually I'm looking out the window right now and he's... uh, (laughs) he's out on his back porch and I might go have a drink with him after I finish this podcast. Uh, I have a lot of friends that are work colleagues that don't necessarily work inside of my organization that I hang out with on a regular basis. That's the way that I get that mentorship. And I think that people just need to be able to do a little bit more work in order to be able to go after it and recognize that this is something that won't just be automatically handed to you, but it actually is a fantastic opportunity to be able to craft that network and really develop out a 
group of peers that will hopefully be able to get your career moving a lot faster than if you had just stayed in an office. Mm. One of the, you know, I think like I have worked globally uh, for the last 20 years and one of the significant impediments to that is time zones, you know, and despite all the technology in the world, we're never, ever going to get rid of time zones. And um, it's, it's fascinating in that regard. And I really believe that sort of asynchronous work has, you know, primarily come out of the fact that we've got to grapple with different time zones. And then once we get over that aspect, then literally sort of it, it unleashes the entire global community um, and the opportunity of that. But would you see in a perfect world if technology could deal with time zones, would it be better to have everyone working at the same time so that you have those water cooler moments and just synchronicity? Uh, or do you think that the ideal is sort of asynchronous? So the number one, you're absolutely right. Asynchronous management was a forcing function from the early days of remote work. When you have a distributed organization that exists all over planet Earth, we have we have team members in every single time zone on planet Earth right now. And there's always going to be 10, 20 people that end up having to show up at 2 to 4 a.m. if we're going to do an all-hands meeting, as an example. So it just creates an environment that, uh, and we do look at that data using Time Doctor, and we can see that the people that have to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning don't perform well <laughs> over the long term because they're waking up at really odd hours of the day. It's, it's impacting their personal productivity. With regards to asynchronous and synchronous work, if everyone, if we could develop some type of teleportation device or some type of I don't know, 24 hour time machines so that everyone could work on the same time zone. I think it would be more advantageous, but the methodology of asynchronous work, which is the documentation of everything inside of your organization, making sure that if you're having a conversation, there are no undocumented conversations inside of your company. There's no secret conversations. There is a system where the platform becomes the manager so that you can basically offshoot a lot of the classic managerial roles towards software instead of actually doing that manually through human beings. These are clear fundamentals that will accelerate your organization, whether you're on the same time zone or not. We actually have companies that are in an office that are operating asynchronously now um, within the last 18 months. And it's a really interesting phenomenon. I'm interested in kind of pursuing it in a deeper way, because a lot of these companies are actually recognizing, you know, the fundamentals of asynchronous management don't necessarily have to apply to remote companies. They can apply to in-office companies as well, and they just make us more effective. Mm-hmm. I went to a beautiful resort in Boracay in the Philippines, you know, beautiful white sand and um, beautiful Is it back villas. open? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's all back open, yeah, oh, okay. uh, and thriving again now, actually, took a, took a long time, but so I went to this resort, and I was walking around, and, you know, there's beautiful villas, and wonderful grounds, and tennis courts, and white sand beaches, and I was like, you know, if remote really becomes ubiquitous, this, these, there is no more need for cities, people won't congregate around cities, and I kind of looked at this resort, saying this is the future of how, sort of, our future generations will live because you can just live in these incredible pristine areas, have a little villa, um, go to the beach and do your work. Like, um, 
do you think the the future of cities uh, is is doomed? And you know, is that a good thing or a kind of neutral thing? Derek, I don't know if you're uh, you literally have the book open in front of what you, but that? you very much. Like, uh, chapter no, I five is. I haven't read the the book, um, but I've downloaded it on Audible now, so I'm going to start it. Okay. Well, so chapter five is the end of cities. And so where we address just that concept, I believe that cities will cease to be places to work and will start to become places to live. Mm -hmm. So the cities that can become the best places to live will become the most successful cities. And the cities that used to be the best places to work will no longer become uh, the center of the conversation. So when you look at these cities that are world-class and, and I would include people talk about how, you know, the death of New York and all that kind of stuff, New York's going to be just fine. Why? Cause it's a really fun city. People can live there. It's very expensive, but people love it and they want to be able to get access to really good coffee shops and yoga studios and, you know, uh, Broadway and really fantastic apartments they love that. But a, a city that kind of recognizes, hey, we could become a utopia for remote workers. I think that that's actually already happening right now. There's a fantastic program in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places, called Tulsa Remote, where they are paying out-of-state remote workers $20,000 to be able to move to Tulsa. So they have to move their residency to Tulsa and live there for one year and they get a $20,000 bonus. Now, why would Tulsa be doing this? Because they recognize that that's outside income. It's out of state income. And now they have a $200,000 a year worker that's probably paying $50,000 in income tax. And a part of that is going directly to Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma. So realizing that they can become magnets for these particular seasons, actually not that difficult. Uh, we talk about that in the book. You need probably a relatively good college or university, like LaSalle, as an example, in Manila. I actually think that um, the Philippines could probably do this in a really, really successful way if they ended up investing a little bit more in their university infrastructure and picking up some other schools throughout the Philippines. And then the second one would be an international airport that connects to a hub, um, in which case that would be... Hong Kong. Uh, so anything that would do like four out four flights a day to Hong Kong and has a university inside of it would be a world class hub for remote workers. Gosh, it's a fascinating future, isn't it? You know, and the the fact, I suppose, the power of remote work is you as a as an individual or a family, you're fundamentally more. Uh, flexible, you know, you can you can maintain your career or your specific job and move around. You know, you can you can move to those cities that are um, attracting you with with better taxation and better quality of living, and you don't have to uproot or, or um, dismember your career from that decision. And so, with more flexibility and mobility you have more optionality and and it's just putting the sort of power in the hands of the worker isn't it as opposed to you know historically labor forces have always been very restricted to where the factories were located or where the urbanization happened and there was no choice about that but now you, you have full optionality of where you want to work versus uh, sorry where you want to live versus where you're going to work it, it kind of separates those two factors yeah yeah, the factory is in your lap now. 
and mm. you can take it wherever you want it to go. Uh, I know that we we talked about this beforehand to some small degree, but digital nomadism is definitely one of those things that's expanding at uh, record pace. Uh, and I actually think that we're going to enter, there are three separate ages of digital nomadism. Age one was a lot of computer engineering and digital nomadism is people that can work from a laptop anywhere. I'm sure that probably the vast majority of uh, the people that listen to your podcast at least know that term. First kind of epoch of digital nomadism was mostly engineers and computer programmers. And they were making an average of, you know, $100,000 plus per year. And they traveled the world and they really loved it. Stage two was the age of, um, I'll call it the Instagram digital nomad, the people that were really kind of selling the lifestyle of you can work on the beach and you can live this fantastic lifestyle. I tried working at the beach once and it cost me $500 in repair fees for my laptop. I highly suggest that people don't do it. But we're learning, we're moving towards age three, which is, um, I'm going to call it, so some people have called it slow matting. So slow nomading. I like to call it the age of the rich, dumb nomad. So I'll give you an example. I have a friend of mine that shall remain nameless that works at one of the largest technology companies in the world in San Francisco. Uh, he's paid over $500,000 a year. He's a director at this company. And he asked me in, uh, and this was right before the lockdown really started in March of 2020. He said, hey, so they're sending us back to home, back home to be able to work from home. Um, how much does it really cost to be able to get a villa in Bali? And I said, oh, well, not like a, like how, what kind of a villa you're looking for? And I sent him an example of a four bedroom villa with a, um, with a housekeeper for 2000 US per month. And he said, I'm paying $8,000 for a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. Mm. What the heck am I doing here? And he left. <laughs> and not only did he leave, um, but for about six months, he started flying back once a month to San Francisco because they required him to show up to the office once a month in order to be able to make sure that he was still a California tax resident and that company was still stating, hey, this guy's coming into the office once a month. We're still going to tax him as a, as a California tax resident. When in reality, actually, he was flying business class and first class once a month um, from various locations all over the world, realizing that he could have a much better lifestyle working as a digital nomad uh, for the same company that he was before. So I, I see that this is going to the average income of your digital nomad in stage two is about $15,000. And I think very close, very soon or already this has happened. Probably the average salary is 150,000 mm -hmm. because a lot of these rich, dumb nomads are just, they don't really know how to do it, but they're learning very, very quickly. Yeah. And I think it's becoming more of a representation of all of society. Whereas, you know, I went backpacking in 2000 for a year around South America and you couldn't work, you know, there was no option. Uh, and now there is, but I think it started a little bit on the fringe with people not earning so much, but soon it'll just be a cross section of society. You know, it'll just be everyone um, that has an inclination to, to travel a bit. And it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty powerful, pretty, pretty attractive. 
Liam, as well, you know, I come to this from a little bit of a different angle. You know, I sort of represent the outsourcing industry, uh, BPOs. A lot of them are very much kind of fixed into their locations, if not by need, but by kind of habit and establishment. Um, But what fascinates me is with outsourcing is the prospect of global employment, you know, uh, meaning that you have a an employment pool of 8 billion people instead of just the local vicinity of where your business is located and, and picking the, the available talent from there. And so I find it incredibly compelling, this, this argument that, you know, within sort of, I believe, five to 20 years from now, everyone by default will be employing their team uh, on the basis of, quality, competency, and cost, as opposed to where they were born or where they're located. Really, really compelling. You know, it's sort of a slightly different aspect, but I think we're, we're both meeting in the middle, and all of it is enabled by the technology, by the remote work, by the asynchronicity, uh, all of these kind of principles or factors of remote work. It's it's just so powerful. There isn't really a question there, but I suppose I suppose the question is, you know, do you see all of this converging to a default globalized employment paradigm within the next, what, five to 20 years? Yeah, so I'd probably give you two suggest- two kind of predictions on that. The first one is, I think, uh, have you ever read um, Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat? I think it no. was the early 2000s. So this was kind of the concept that, at one point, there would be a global income for every single individual inside of the world, and the average cost of an engineer, as an example, or customer support agent, would be the same globally. And I think eventually we're going to get there. Uh, I think within the next 10 years, you're probably going to see half the S&P 500 working primarily remotely. Um, we can go back in 10 years, and we can settle that bet. I'll bet you a buck on that one that that one ends up being... Uh, and, and that's probably my conservative estimate because I think we're not just dealing with a we're not just dealing with a business model that's more advantageous towards the employer or the employee, but just a more effective business model for businesses. It's a more efficient way of extracting value outside of labor. And so, for me, uh, I love to take um, the head of remote at GitLab, who's also in the book, Darren Murph talked about how he believes this is a Model T moment where we're starting to see a new way of building companies, which is asynchronous remote organizations that's just far more cost-effective than any other way of building companies. And it took a while, right? It took actually 15 years before Fordism ended up taking over all of manufacturing and everyone was running their factories that particular way. So... I think that that's, this is an inevitability, and there's, there's two kind of ways of looking at this. You can be fearful of that change, or you can embrace that change and recognize if you're listening to this podcast right now, you have the opportunity to be able to learn this strategy and these strategies way before the majority does. And you always want to be in that first 10%, that first 20%, because those are the people that end up dictating terms to the other 90 to 80% over the next decade. So that's, that's my general perspective to anyone that's really thinking to themselves, oh, you know, this remote work stuff, it really won't work out. Um, it's not going away. 
mm-hmm. most data, and this is actually U.S. data, and McKinsey had another study, and they came to the same conclusion. Remote work is actually going back up again. So we were at 45%, we're down to 35%, and we're now seeing those numbers tick back up in effectively a post-COVID world. So we're realizing that when you look at full salinity for remote work in the United States, it's 67% of the U.S. workforce, and they are predicting 50% of the U.S. workforce will be working remotely, at least in part, within the next five years. So you have to adapt to that new reality. You have to think about this as I'm going to at least be managing half of my workers remotely, and you need to be able to build a you need to have a methodology in place in order to be able to do it effectively. And again, it's just incredible to have that optionality. And again, as you mentioned right at the beginning, it was forced on a lot of people certainly to explore it as a result of COVID, and that's maybe pushed us ahead ten years of this thing. But again, you know, it was only possible. Imagine, I just imagine if if COVID happened 10 to 20 years ago, when there wasn't the technology to facilitate work from home, it would have been an absolute economic disaster. And we're lucky that we're in today's time that, you know, we had all of those tools and we were probably mostly using them, even though a lot of people still rejected the concept of remote or work from home. Um, But, you know, none of this is possible without the technology rails that we're now sitting on. But luckily it's, ubiquitous now isn't it every business uses gmail and slack and zoom and um you know all of these tools that then make remote work the natural step and natural option uh, it's, it's yeah that that was really the beauty of um and actually it's one of my investment my main investment thesis is to be able to own effectively the s&p 500 of the remote technology stack because even though there was a significant amount of growth over the last two and a half years. I actually think we're still in the first inning. Um, when you see all the other things that needed to be, that need to be added to that infrastructure. I, I'm still looking, if anyone is listening, I'm looking for a project management system that's actually built from an asynchronous basis. Um, I don't have the amount of time to actually build that product, but if anyone is interested, I'd love to be able to help you build it. Uh, you know, the, I think that when you look at the metaverse, when you look at being able to collaborate in virtual reality, I think that there's a massive opportunity there where people are literally going to be able to teleport in to a working space where we're currently on, we're looking at each other's videos right now, but I could be sitting in your office and I could be, you know, playing with your dog as an example. Uh, You know, that, that form of human connection, I think we're absolutely going to be able to to get access to it very, very soon as we're seeing effectively one third of the Western population working remotely. They're going to be demanding these types of products. Mm. Matt Mullenweg had a, had a comment about remote work that he said it, it, you know, and I'm not sure if this is too dogmatic, but he said it's kind of all or nothing. If you have a hybrid, then it creates two classes within the office. You know, those that are probably going into the office create uh, bonds quicker. They're likely to get more promotions, you know, whether that's true or not. Um, but he sort of felt that it needed to be fully distributed across the board. Uh, um, you know, and then there are jobs, Liam, that cannot be remote, like the Starbucks employees and the truck drivers and uh, the nurses in hospital, will that potentially create a, a more of a two-tier society where those roles that are sort of computer-enabled will 
I don't know, rise to the top or get more opportunities or be paid more. And those stuck in physical locations become almost second-class citizens. Yes, there's there's definitely a two-tier system that's starting to assemble even now. Uh, if you work remotely, there's a four time there's a four x higher chance that you would make more than a hundred thousand dollars per year than if you don't work remotely. So, very clear data to show people that work remotely make more money because they are knowledge workers. Knowledge workers, on average, get paid more uh, because that's what the economy is currently looking for. With regards to Mullingwig's comments on either being remote or not remote. Um, I agree with him, but there are ways of getting out of that situation. So the phenomenon that he's talking about is called distance bias. And it's very well documented inside of hybrid teams that the closer you are to your manager, the more access that you have to your manager, the faster you grow throughout that organization. So the more of a rapport that you can build with him. So let's say that we were, the two of us were working together and my, and, and you were sitting with um, your manager as an example, where you are and I was working remotely. When we shut this call off and maybe we've all decided to do A, you might turn to your manager and say, Liam's an idiot. You know that we don't want to do A, we want to do B. Uh, and then you would have an undocumented conversation Again, talking about synchronous versus asynchronous, that conversation would not be recorded. I wouldn't have access to that type of information. And then the next day, I would wake up and I would say to myself, why are we doing B when I thought that we were going to do A? We came to that conclusion. And I have to either go into the office to be able to get closer access to my manager, or I quit and I join the great resignation. The vast majority of people are doing the latter as opposed to the former. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these people end up losing or leaving their jobs to find other jobs where they're treated more equally. There are ways of optimizing for this. Number one is just communicating that to managers saying there's an obvious bias for the person that's closest to you. You need to be able to make sure that you're controlling for that and you're conscious of it. And then the second thing is actually implementing asynchronous management which would delineate those risks because you're actually giving equal attention to every single worker inside of your organization and you're really allowing them to be able to have the same amount of face time with you, um, whether they're remote or they're in person. Mm. Yeah, no, fascinating. I think all of this will play out over the over the future years, won't it? And we'll find the new the new norms. So Liam, before we go, uh, running remote, not the book, although I encourage everyone to get <laughs> the book, but running remote, the community and conference. You have a conference coming up. Tell us a little bit about that if, if people are interested. Yeah. And it's, so uh, who, it, who's the target audience? It's not necessarily the the digital nomads, but but who is the target for running remote? So it's it's business owners that are interested in running remote first companies that are not just lifestyle businesses, but unicorns. Um, how do you build a billion dollar company remotely? That was the original thesis statement of running remote. We were effectively assembling all of the people, the plays, the, the talks on that particular subject. And we've continued on with that, obviously, with this book, Running Remote, um, that is kind of an encapsulization of the last five years of all of the conversations and chats that I've had. Next one is happening in Lisbon, Portugal on April 25th and 26th of 2023. 
And we're going to have a lot of really great people that are coming in. Um, and again, this is uh, a lot of people kind of poke fun at me, which is they say, well, it's called running remote and you're meeting in person. Well, yeah. Um, Remote companies actually need to meet in person from time to time. We do it quite a bit. And so this is kind of a space for those business owners that are running their companies to be with a tribe of people that are excited about the same things that we are, which is not just building lifestyle businesses, but building real serious companies that uh, will hopefully become some of those powerful companies in the world. Yeah, fascinating. And I'm certainly interested. Lisbon is a fantastic place. And uh, so I'll certainly be keeping my eyes open for that upcoming conference. Liam, thank you so much. Uh, And running remote the book, again, I've just downloaded it now. So I'm going to listen to it as soon as we finish this podcast. Um, But if anyone wants to know more about running remote or the book or you, how can they get in touch? Runningremotebook.com is the best place to be able to check out everything connected to the book. And if you can't afford the book or going to the conference, uh, check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash runningremote. All of our talks are up there for free. It's a massive database of, I would probably call it a master's degree in remote work. So if you're interested in checking that out, go see that. And if you want to chat with me, I'm at Liam Remote at almost all forms of social media. Liam, amazing. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know that uh, we did this a couple years ago and it's so much fun to be able to actually talk to someone that I can kind of communicate on a shorthand basis with, with regards to remote work. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible industry where we're sharing, I think, and, and certainly a bright future ahead. So thank you so much, Liam. Thanks for having me. That was Liam Martin. He's the co-founder of Time Doctor and Running Remote and also the co-author of the book Running Remote. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to ask us anything, then just send us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.